Romans 8, 26 to 39 in the New Living Translation. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows that the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us as well, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither or fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me tell you the story of the day I proposed to set the mood for today's message. It was January 1st, 2008, and it was freezing outside, well below minus 30. I had already covertly asked her parents' blessing months before, and I was just waiting for the perfect time to pop the question. And after a long while of tossing back and forth the options, I had at last come to the excellent decision. For 2008 was a leap year, so I always a sucker for anything that even slightly whiffs of symbolism, be it for what in this case, I don't know. I had my date set. It was going to be February 29th. And so long and hard, I schemed at the perfect proposal. At one point, there was plans of fireworks to be viewed from the post office in Otterburn, the site of which I asked her to be my girlfriend just shy of a year before. Something that for certain sounds a bit odd, but that's a story left best for a different day. 
because this proposal, oh, it would have been magnificent. You see, friends of mine, they were going to be unseen. They would light off fireworks from the banks of the mighty Rat River at a time set in advance, unknown to Shannon. And in the sky, I envisioned the explosions. They were going to come together and spell out a simple message. I love you, Shannon Jeffrey. Will you marry me? To which, obviously, tears were going to be in her eyes, and she would turn to me, and it somehow I would be in a full tuxedo at that point on one knee with a 10 carat diamond ring in hand. In the end, though, two factors caused me to scrap this overly ambitious plan. The first being money, as this would have cost an incomprehensible amount, as well as I don't even know if it was actually be possible one way or the other, and I was at the time very much so unemployed. And the second and, and perhaps more significant was a deep-seated fear that I had that if I did this, she may one day find out that the bare bones of this plan actually came from something I was coming up with to ask out a different girl two years before I even met Shannon. And if she were to find that out, I think it would go very poorly for me. But thankfully, for the both of us, as well as the future of our marriage, this monstrosity of a proposal was never to be witnessed, for it was in the afternoon of January 1st, 2008, the very day I proposed to Shannon that over two cups at the local coffee shop, one of which I accidentally dumped all over the both of us, that the topic of when we were going to get engaged came up, as it often does for two kids as in love as we were. And tempting fate, I asked her if she would guess as to when the big moment was going to happen. To which, without waiting even a single moment, as if this is something that she had actually put a lot of thought into, she stated rather matter-of-factly, it's going to be the night of February 29th, in as deadpan a voice as is humanly possible. And a point goes to Shannon for realizing that I am a lot more basic than I thought myself to be. But I, as the story of the fireworks proves most clear, was far too much of a romantic to let my future wife be right on something as important as this. And so, then and there, in that Starbucks, covered in stale and sticky coffee, my mind, it started to work. For between January 1st and February 29th, there was one other day that I thought would be considered significant enough to be worth our proposal. And that is New Year's Day itself. And so the game was afoot. We arrived back at her apartment later that afternoon to have supper and watch a movie with her roommates. Fiddler on the Roof, excellent movie. And while Shannon assuredly was watching Tevye to laugh at his shenanigans, I instead watched the movie about three daughters becoming three brides with different intentions in mind. And by the time the film was through three hours and one minute later, my plans were set. We were young then, I reasoned, spontaneous, so surely she would find it romantic to play out of doors on the snow hills at midnight. It was softly snowing that night as well. Apparently, in my mind, at that time, I had mistaken the both of us for young children, but forgive me, I was kind of desperate. And so, following an excuse that I have long since forgotten, we bundled up. And soon we were there, on top of the highest peak of the hill, all of three 
maybe four feet in the air, overlooking the glory that is the Pemina Place parking lot. And it did not take long until I discovered the fatal flaw in my long thought out and carefully strategized plan. For again, it was well below minus 30 and the wind was from the north and it was strong. So while I worked hard to gather up the courage, Shannon in that same amount of time became first cold and then nearly frostbitten until finally she looked at me and to my recollection requested that I go ahead and propose sooner rather than later because she was freezing her and this is in the words of the immortal Tevia, took us off. Point two to Shannon for again understanding my thought processes far too well. But unlike before, on this night, soon thereafter, we were waking up her roommates to tell her, tell them the good news. And it is somehow in the telling of this story, filled with spilled coffee, fiddler on the roof, a frozen fiancé who seems to get me better than I get myself, and many a well-placed embellishment, that we find the mood set for us to explore today's passage. Romans 8, 26 to 39. And to do that, we actually need to start with where we ended off last week, as this passage largely continues on developing a common theme that the Apostle Paul began with then. For where we ended last week, as you may remember, was with one of the great eureka moments that the Apostle Paul has for us believers of Christ. Essentially, what Paul says there is that since we Christians know that God is at work in the world, that must also mean that the Spirit of God is first at work in us, that the Holy Spirit is first at work in us. And if that is true, then what that also means is that by knowing God is at work in the world, we also have assurance of our own salvation. Because again, we can only know what God is up to because the Spirit is first at work in us to open our eyes to that truth. This was the big point to take away from last week's passage, which immediately sets up for us what Paul is continuing to cover today. For just as how we can only know that God is at work in us uh, and in the world because the Holy Spirit is first at work in us to open our eyes to that truth, that the Holy Spirit is first at work in us also means that we can know several other things to be true as well, three of which we're going to talk about today. The first of which has to do with prayer. Now, I can't see you, but don't raise your hands one way or the other, because I I don't want to make anyone feel ashamed by asking what I'm about to ask. But who listening to this has ever found themselves in the following position when it comes to prayer? Uh, You know you should pray more. You know you should pray with others, but you are kind of afraid to do that because you either fear that you're going to say the wrong thing or possibly that you might not even know what to say at all. And before you know it, you're just going to find yourself in front of an entire church worth of people in dead silences hanging in the air. Maybe that one is more for the pastors listening to this and myself as well. But Who has 
a fear at least vaguely related to this. I suspect all of us at some point in our lives have had some amount of that concern, or maybe a variant of it. Maybe you are concerned that when you pray, what you will pray for will be something that is very clearly in your own opinions and wants, and that will somehow make God angry at you. I most certainly have had both of these fears at different points in my life, and I'm not embarrassed to admit that. They are kind of a common fear among Christians. Truthfully, they are among the most common fears when it comes to people not wanting to pray for others because they kind of form the basis of that fear of being judged, the fear that you will say the wrong thing and either God or others will not take kindly to it. There's a reason that Paul is addressing this in the first place, after all. But this is the fear that Paul is addressing in the beginning of today's passage. Uh, You can see it starting already in verse 26. There he explains that the truth of the matter is that if the Holy Spirit is in us already, we should try to calm our fears of these things as best we can. Because if the Holy Spirit is in us as we know he is, as he is in the hearts of all believers, uh, that were told by Jesus Christ himself at the end of the Gospels, then the simple fact is that God knows our hearts anyway. He knew, He knows the words we are meaning to find but just can't seem to. He knows them just as well, if not better, than a half-frozen girlfriend knows she's about to be made a fiancé. He knows how we long to cry out in a way that fully expresses those deepest parts of our souls, but are frustrated by our inability to do that. He knows all of these issues with how we see our own communication. But the thing is, is that he hears us all the same. More than that even, if our fear is that we will pray exclusively for our own wills and our own wants and not for what God really wants us to pray for, don't worry about that either. The Spirit is at work in us always. Just pray, and in time through the work of the Spirit in your life, you will find more and more that those two things, the will of God on the one hand and the will of you on the other, will begin to sync up in a good way. That the Spirit of God is in us, that the Holy Spirit is in us. This is what it means for how we pray, Paul says. God knows our hearts already, but that doesn't mean he doesn't still want to hear from us. So be not encumbered, just pray. As a side note, on the implications of this, if also means that if you are the type to judge someone based on their prayers, no, it is not a good place to be in to judge others for how the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. But that's just a side. But from this discussion on prayer, Paul goes on to talk more about the second thing that it means for the Spirit uh, in us in this passage, tackling God's promise to not forget his people. You can see this starting in verse 28. Now, for the past 400 years or so, this part of the passage has generally been co-opted by different branches of Christians to be talking exclusively about 
something called predestination, the doctrine that God picks the elect, all the Christian believers that there will ever be throughout all of time. And he picked those at the beginning and there's never going to be any more. And while that is a whole discussion best left for other venues than this, don't ever let that debate take away from something even more important that can also be found in this part of the passage for us believers of Christ. For in these verses, what we see is again assurance that no matter what happens in the world, in the whole of the wide world, God cares for us, his believers. No matter the pain and the suffering that exists in the world today, no matter the ups and the downs that cause us to cry out to God in our prayers, unable to find the words to describe our lot, God cares for us, his believers, and as such, he is telling us that he is working to sort things out. He's working to sort the world out. He's working to sort us believers out. No, scratch that. Not only is he just working to sort all of that out, he is actually doing us one better, Paul says. He is priming us believers with the Holy Spirit in us. He is priming us to be the brothers and sisters of Jesus, glorified by his glory, like a groom and his bride together, set to stand on top of the world, a vision to behold. Through the work of the Spirit, Paul is telling us here, God is lifting us up to stand with Christ, justified, absolved, and moved past our sin in the world that is set right, the world that is soon to come. This, Paul is telling us, in his best apocalyptic language, his best language of what one day will come, is the next thing that having the Spirit in us means, that we believers of who Christ is and what he has done are both being and will be lifted by God into his glory. To which we come to the third and final teaching of Paul as to the work of the Spirit in us believers in this passage. Again, in other books of Paul, he talks a lot more about what the Spirit all does, but in this passage, this is the last one and possibly the most comforting thing I have ever read. Because rightly, Paul questions that if these are the lengths that God will go to for us, that he would send his spirit to give us assurance, to help us pray and to lift us to glory. Rightly, Paul questions that if this is all true, then what possible reason would justify all of this effort on God, all this effort of God on our behalf, save for one, that he loves us so much as to do all of this. And it's here where of all of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us, the ones that I listed before, as well as the many others that show up in other places in the Bible, that Paul reminds us of one of the most important functions of the Spirit in us of all. That is only by the Spirit being in us that we can begin to know the love of God. 
For if by the Spirit in us we can know that we are saved, for if by the Spirit in us we can know the world will one day be set to right, for if by the Spirit in us we can know God knows our needs, our pains, our longings, and our hearts, for if by the Spirit in us we can know that God will raise us up to stand alongside Christ himself, glorified in his glory, and if by the Spirit in us, we can know that Christ is who he says he is, the one who died for our sins and was risen from the dead, wiping that slate clean. For with the Spirit of our God in us believers, shaping us and comforting us and forming us, assuring us, raising us, loving us, with the Spirit of our God in us, showing that all of this and more are the lengths our God will go to in order to hold us close. Paul asks us in earnest, although as one who already clearly knows the answer, if this is the Spirit of God in you, then what in all of creation could possibly be enough to separate us from the love of God. With God for us, Paul says, who can possibly be against us? This is the God who created all things, after all. This is the God who has worked for millennia to bring his people close. This is the God who sent his son to die in place for us, for our sins, as it was the only chance that there was to save us from destroying ourselves. This is the God who guides the church, his bride, just as Shannon became mine. And this is the God who sent his spirit so that we can know all of this is the truth. And so again, Paul asks us, if this is all our God will do for us, and then what in all of existence could possibly cause him to stop loving us? We can turn away from him for sure, but the love is still there. God will always be there, and it is through the work of the Spirit that we believers know this in our bones to be true and live toward others in the same way in reflection. That is our passage today. As believers of Jesus Christ, people who know that he is the Son of God, who was born, lived, died for our sins, was risen, wiping the slate clean, and who ascended into heaven where he speaks up for us on our behalf to God the Father, and who sent the Spirit to be in us believers. As believers of God in Christ, we are told in Scripture both at the end of the Gospels and in Acts 2, I encourage you to read it, we are told in Scripture that the Spirit of God has come upon us and that that is true. So is all that we discussed today, last week, as well as so much more. And how amazing, I ask you all, is that?